0: Nancy Pelosi's challenger. Hello everybody, welcome to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the leading Democrat, is running for re-election in California's 12th congressional district. But she is facing a challenger and we are speaking today with Shahid Bhutar uh, Since we last spoke with them, Nancy Pelosi seems to have had something of a change on the signature issue that Mr. Bhutar has been putting forward. And that is disclosure issues in terms of members of Congress disclosing their stock trade. So to talk about it, Shahid Bhutar. Joins us. Um, thanks for being with us. So, Nancy Pelosi says she now does support a ban on lawmakers
1: trading stocks individually. What's your reaction? It's long overdue and it remains quite inadequate. The controversy has been framed as the way you described it disclosure over publicly traded stock trades. But it's actually worse than that. The ultimate problem is divided loyalties and conflicts of interest and the corporate corruption of the federal policymaking process that results. And those conflicts of interest don't just emerge from positions in publicly traded stocks, private equity investments, hedge fund investments, even real estate investments. Just as an example of this, there was a bill in 2020 that would have forced banks to pay the costs of housing, rents and mortgage payments. It never got a hearing, it never got a vote, might it have gotten a vote if Democrats weren't led in the house by a wealthy landlord. These are conflicts of interest that infect federal policymaking and none of the proposed reforms that have been introduced would adequately address the problem.
0: House Speaker Pelosi's husband apparently had stock trades in January that she revealed of $2.9 million in Apple, Walt Disney, PayPal and Amex. Uh, Anything particularly wrong with those
1: companies? Well, it's not the companies so much that she trades that are the problem. It's the ways in which those companies interests then infect her policymaking, right? So the most visible example of this might have been her participation in the Visa IPO many years ago when she then blocked proposed Credit regulation that would have favored consumers and undermined the company that she had just invested in. So it's less about the particular companies and it's more about those companies interests. For instance, Apple is a renowned uh, abuser of intellectual property rights, while it's better on some issues like corporate surveillance than other tech companies like Facebook, it's got problems of its own. You really can't invest in stocks without creating some sort of problem in terms of a conflict of interest and a divided loyalty. And the point ultimately is that disclosure is not enough. We need to ban policymakers from trying to profit from their offices. There is a constitutional prohibition on exactly that, the emoluments clause. The irony is that the only people in a position to enforce the emoluments clause are voters. And that's exactly why I'm running to replace a corrupt oligarch in order to help liberate at least my city's voice in Congress from this corrupting corporate influence.
0: And Shahin, should that ban also extend to, uh, to spouses, to
1: other family members? Spouses, family members, staff and their family members. No one with a hand in the federal policymaking process should be making money from it. Particularly when that policymaking process does things like denying Americans the universal right to health care. Or impeding climate justice by continuing absurd fossil fuel subsidies. There are real world impacts. Of the corruption that these divided loyalties invite and entrench and that Pelosi unfortunately embodies. And those impacts are being felt by hundreds of million Americans around the country, billions of people around the world and untold numbers in the future who are gonna have to grapple with the predatory policies passed by our Congress of millionaires filling their pockets at the public's expense.
0: When we spoke to you a couple of months ago, you were hoping to have some sort of a debate or direct opportunity to question how Speaker Pelosi is part of this campaign. Has that materialized? Has there been any contact with her campaign, any willingness by her campaign to engage with you?
1: Not only is her campaign completely unwilling to debate, but she has been unwilling to debate for 35 years. I wanna broaden the circle here. Our impending primary on June 7th is one of the best kept secrets in the country. Not a single press outlet, even in San Francisco has covered the race once yet. And I find it bizarre that with six weeks remaining before a federal election over one of the most powerful seats in Congress. uh, No one in the public has had an opportunity to hear about the issues. And so it's not just Pelosi refusing to debate. Journalists are refusing to cover not just our race, but the issues. I wanna make this really sharp. We put out a message to the climate change reporters at the New York Times. And one of them wrote back and our message was about our proposal to nationalize the fossil fuel sector. At the moment, Congress is investing $20 billion a year in fossil fuel subsidies. It is absolutely insane. It would have been insane even before the climate crisis in the middle of it. You just, it, it, it defies description. And so we reach out to the New York Times, I'm running for Congress against Pelosi. This is one of our signature policies and they write back, "Oh, this isn't something that we want to cover. And so we're going through in 2022, this reckoning over the abdication by large parts of the press of their constitutional function of informing our democracy. And I see journalists really excited right now that movies about climate change, for instance, are getting recognized at award ceremonies. But still the discussion about the actual policies that we need to guard the future from the predation of the past. It's not just the incumbents who don't wanna discuss these issues, even the press doesn't want to discuss these issues. It's one reason I'm so grateful for your work and the work of the Young Turks and it's to give viewers and voters an opportunity to hear the choices before them. That is the role of the press. Well, and I'll, I'll
0: agree with you that I think it is a huge abdication of much of the media to not cover these issues, to not cover the policy debates. But what I hear from a lot of the political media who might otherwise cover your race, and I've heard this when they talk about other races around the country. Is they say, well, we don't want to invest a lot of ink or a lot of air time because we just don't think that the incumbent has any chance of losing, that this is such a powerful incumbent. Why bother suggesting that this race is competitive?
1: How do you respond to that? Well, ultimately, the reason that they think these races aren't competitive is because voters don't know the issues. Pelosi calls herself progressive, and she gets away with it, right? She performatively kneels in kente cloth, and so people think that she's been supporting racial justice, even when she's been complicit in predatory policing. She does things like mouthing support now for the congressional for for limits on congressional insider trading when she's been a poster child of corruption for 35 years. She talks about Democrats wanting to. You know, stand with people grappling with the challenges imposed by the pandemic. While she blocks a vote for Medicare for all from even proceeding and as a result, Americans uniquely in the world are the only people while everyone's dealing with the pandemic, only Americans are grappling with medical debt. And it's medical debt to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. While this oligarch has frozen the federal minimum wage for 10 years and repeatedly engineered tax breaks favoring the wealthy herself. And her wealthy friends and if voters knew those issues, this seat would be quite competitive. A sharper way I might put that is that if the press showed up for work and San Franciscans understood how we have been represented for 35 years and my neighbors understood the choices before us. I have no doubt that I'll be the representative in the House of Representatives doing the job of championing my city's proud visionary values in the next term.
0: But some of us have pressed Nancy Pelosi's office, for example, on not allowing a, a Medicare vote. Uh, the response back is, well, look, she supports Medicare for all, but she has a responsibility to the entire Democratic caucus to look out for everybody's interests and why bother bringing something to a vote. As the leader of the Democratic caucus, that is not going to pass that she seems to sort of have this sort of understanding or this agreement that sure, if a measure looks like it will pass the Democratic caucus, then she'll bring it forward. If it doesn't have a chance, then she won't. Um, That distinction between her own personal views and her leadership
1: responsibilities, what do you make of it? It's an entirely disingenuous claim that doesn't hold water. Medicare for all is favored by bipartisan majorities across the United States. The reason Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to bring it to a vote is because A, she doesn't want members of her caucus who are unwilling to support the policy to have to bear accountability for that decision. You might include her among them. And the claim by the speaker that she is playing some four dimensional chess when, at the end of the day, this is simply an affirmative denial of human rights. And human rights violations demand accountability. And there's no, frankly, excuse that justifies them. She can make up any number of political excuses. But at the end of the day, if we have a global pandemic, a million Americans dead, bipartisan majorities across the entire country favoring a proposal that is already in place around the rest of the industrialized world, there is not a single good reason that the house has not yet embraced this policy. It is an ongoing reflection of the corporate corruption of the federal making process of the policy making process that we've been discussing. And Shahid,
0: as we discussed, uh, you're not getting much attention. The the political process is not covering the race, they're not covering the issues. So what do you do between now and June the 7th to try to bring this in front of the voters of California's 12th congressional district?
1: Great question. And I should note that among the things that have changed is the number of our district redistricting. just. Completed, So we're now the 11th congressional district only because California lost a seat. But we're working hard to reach voters in public fora like farmers markets uh, at public events, we're reaching them in their homes, phone banking on the doors. We're taking a particular effort to work through supporters to engage and meet and inform their respective neighbors, friends, colleagues, family. That sort of uh, supporter enabled campaign puts our supporters in front and at the end of the day I'm not a politician I'm an advocate and an activist and an organizer and so our path to getting me here in the first place was organizing the community and finding people who share our concerns about the future finding ways for them to support the campaign not just donating and volunteering but doing things like hosting gatherings to inform their neighbors and their friends about the issues that the press isn't covering those are the kinds of events that I've been very uh, grateful for the opportunity to do. And I'm very grateful to all of our supporters, uh, the thousands of them across the country and particularly the podcasters who've done the work that the institutional press has failed. I should make clear that while I would only have the opportunity of successful to represent San Francisco, uh, the values and the principles that I'm running on are widely shared across the country. And so we're very eager to invite anyone who cares about climate justice or healthcare or ending the corporate corruption of Congress. consider joining us to volunteer with us from wherever you live or donating from wherever you might be at shahidforchange.us. Shahidforchange.us, and again, people can go there until uh, June
0: the 7th. uh, And Shahid, let's just suppose um, you don't win, is it still something of a moral victory that you're getting at least these issues out there, whether it's on this platform or other platforms or talking to the voters of the district and clearly having an impact on Speaker Pelosi, at least moving her a little bit on when it comes to uh, stock trades and disclosures.
1: It's actually the seventh issue where she's conceded a policy to our campaign. Over the course of the time that I've run for this seat, we've managed to hold Pelosi accountable and change her positions on worker rights, on civil rights and policing, funding the postal service, impeaching a criminal president, um, and asserting congressional war powers to block unilateral executive action. There's lots of issues on which we've had impacts, you know, well beyond our race. and, the opportunity to punch above my weight is one I'm grateful for and I'm eager to hold this oligarch accountable and win my city a new voice. Shahid
0: Buttar, he is the opponent of Nancy Pelosi in the Democratic primary, June the 7th, California's 11th congressional district. Shahid, good luck to you and thanks for coming on as always, we appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much for having me, David. You got it. Is
0: a wealth tax the answer? Hello everybody, welcome back to the conversation, I'm David Schuster. There are growing concerns around the globe over the growing gap between wealthy and poor, not just in the United States, of course, but literally around the globe. And there seems to be a consensus emerging at least in some quarters over some sort of wealth tax in the United States, for example, taxing some of the wealthiest Americans in order to help pay for things that the government is currently not paying for. Is that such a good idea? Joining us is Gary Stevenson, he is a trader, turn inequality economist, he joins us from London. And Gary, first of all, uh, before we get into a wealth tax, explain
2: why is wealth inequality continuing to get worse? I think it's very important that people realize just how much wealth inequality has increased in the last two years. So during COVID there has been a truly enormous increase in wealth inequality. And um, I think this happens in a way which is a little bit counterintuitive. And I think it's very important that people understand because the first thing is the government gave out an enormous amount of money during COVID, $4 trillion, that's truly enormous. It's about $15,000 for every adult in the country. Um, Now, in many cases that went directly to people who are poor and in need. So I think people might think this would perhaps be good for inequality, but you need to take it in a broader context of what has happened during COVID. So during COVID, there was a cancellation of a lot of spending, but not all spending. Okay, If you're a poor or ordinary person and most of your spending is on rent, mortgage, food, bills, those expenditures remain during COVID. The kind of expenditures which disappeared during COVID were luxury and non-essential spending. So who has the most luxury and non-essential spending? Basically, it's rich people. So during COVID, rich people massively stopped spending. Now, that causes two problems. One is that spending drives ordinary people's wages. The other is, if they don't spend it, then it starts to accumulate in their bank account. So when the government came in, and basically supported the incomes of ordinary people. They didn't do anything about the massive amount of money accumulating in rich people's bank accounts. So essentially, the government has taken the place of the rich. And money which used to flow around in a circle has now flowed in a line from the government to ordinary people and ended up accumulating in rich people's bank accounts. So the end result is four trillion dollars accumulating in the bank accounts of the rich. That's fifteen thousand dollars for every American adult. If you out there do not have fifteen thousand dollars more than you had before COVID, some rich person has got it.
0: Now, some of those rich people obviously are getting wealthier, not because of productivity, but because their value of their paper is is going up. But what about the argument that some very wealthy people who create a very good product or who are very productive with
2: their industries are benefiting because of that productivity? Listen, I've got nothing against rich people, okay? I'm a rich person myself. I've made a lot of money by betting that inequality would destroy your country's economy. So listen, I'm the best person to ask, okay? I've got nothing against rich people. I've got a lot of money and I've made a lot of money during COVID. But the problem is, if you give the rich people $4 trillion and you know, I really cannot labor enough how much money $4 trillion is. Like if I was to come to you three years ago and say, imagine the government just printed $4 trillion and gave it to rich people. What would you say would happen? Well, if you just said that to me, I would say, well, probably it will push prices up and it will cause a cost of living crisis for the people who didn't get the $4 trillion. And you know, I'm not just saying that now. People can go and look at the videos I put out on my YouTube two years ago, saying "Look, the government is printing huge amounts of money. It's going to rich people and it's going to cause inequality to rise, house prices to rise, stock prices to rise, and the cost of living crisis of inflation for ordinary people. That is what happens if the government gives $4 trillion to rich people. So look, I've got nothing against rich people. I don't hate them. You know what I mean? I've worked with a lot of them. Some of them are even quite nice if you get to know them. But the truth is, this is the cause of the cost of living crisis. And it's meaning could, that ordinary Americans can't, can't feed their kids. What could the government have done differently though
0: during the pandemic? If the goal was, okay, let's help people who are struggling, have lost their job. I mean, I suppose there could have been some sort of means testing in a way. But there was some sort of means
2: testing towards focusing this money on people who direly needed it. Listen, 100% give the money. You, you have to give the money. Every country in the world did that because you have to do it. But if you are going to print $4 trillion and give it out, you need to do some back of the fag packet calculations and say, look, who is going to end up with this money? Where is this $4 trillion going to go? You can't give out $4 trillion without doing some analysis of where the money is ending up. Because all the statistics now show that that money is ending up with the richest people in the country. So
0: and so the problem the problem was not look the problem wasn't this wasn't helping people with the money it's that it wasn't accompanied by not only analysis of where the money went out but also then some means of getting
2: the revenue back from the wealthiest people who were seeing their wealth grow even more yeah i think there just has to be a little bit of understanding which is look this is an emergency situation we need to give money out but it is going to cause a transfer of 4 trillion dollars of wealth from the government to the richest and that is going to cause an economic crisis you know you know, this analysis should have been done at the beginning, and then we should say, okay, well, the rich are going to get $4 trillion. We will need to get some of that back, otherwise, we will cause this sort of crisis. You know, the set, and I know it was an emergency situation, but the analysis was missing. $4 trillion has transferred from the US government to the wealthiest people in the country. It is the largest and quickest ever increase in wealth inequality in the United States. You know, if you were going to have the largest and quickest ever increase in wealth inequality, then that will be associated with the largest and quickest ever decrease in living standards for ordinary people and increase in living standards for the rich. This is not rocket science. And my biggest concern, my biggest concern is that right now this cost of living crisis gets blamed 100% on Vladimir Putin and Russia, because can, you can see it happening in the media now. And if that happens, then it means that this $4 trillion, which is still sitting in the bank accounts of the richest Americans, by the way, will be left there. And they will use that to buy houses that your kids need to buy stocks and shares that you need for your pension to drive up wealth inequality to even higher levels, and we will see an economic disaster. And we are seeing it.
0: One of the efforts to try to rectify part of the solution has been in, in the United States that Senator Elizabeth Warren has proposed a wealth tax. Uh, the, the rap against that is that it would not only tax you know, the wealthiest 1%, but you would have some very wealthy doctors and businessmen and people who aren't so wealthy who would also be pinched and have less money that they would spend and circulate
2: in the economy. Thoughts? Yeah, look, I'm a strong campaigner for wealth tax. I've been supporting it for a long time. And what I always say when people say this is, look, I'm not about taxing people with $1 million, okay? I'm about taxing people with $100 million, okay? The average billionaire in the US has seen their wealth double in the last two years during a crisis in which increasingly ordinary people can't afford to heat their homes, okay? These guys, if you allow these guys to take more and more wealth, They will use that to buy the rest of the homes. You know, I'm not just saying this. I've been betting on this for 15 years and I've made millions of pounds doing it. Okay. If you allow these guys to accumulate more and more wealth, they will eventually take everything and you will see an economic disaster. And we are seeing it. So, um, look, if you're out there and you're a doctor or a lawyer, you are not my enemy. You know what I mean? I was a banker myself. You know, I've got money, you know, and I'm willing to pay a bit more. But the problem here is the super, super rich. What
0: about the problem that some people have identified like Bernie Sanders has identified people essentially trading pieces of paper. So he wants to put a a transaction tax or a penny per trade on Wall Street with the idea being that okay, the financial sector in the United States, you shouldn't be able to make so much money by trading so quickly with speculation and making bets that there should be some sort of tax on that. Does that make sense in your estimation?
2: Well, listen, I've traded a few pieces of paper in my time. So I guess some people will be pointing some fingers at me here. Look, the most important thing with any tax is that it hits the richest. It has to hit the richest, okay? Look, if you're not going out there and you're getting, if you're not getting Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, then you are failing in your tax. So look, I would be willing to anticipate to talk about lots of potential taxes that we could do. The most important thing is that you catch the richest. You have to catch, because I know people out there will be looking looking at me and saying, you're going to bring a tax in, the richest will avoid it, and you're going to hit me. That's not what I want to do, I want to bring a tax that is well designed, well planned and hits the richest people in the country.
0: You mentioned uh, and you've been correct on a lot of things like inflation, on the wealth transfer, uh, on all the sort of side effects, uh, housing prices going up. Uh, Given your track record, let's ask you a little bit about the future. What do you see if nothing changes? What do you see happening
2: over the next year or two in the United States with the economy? David, I'm not gonna sugarcoat this for you. This is gonna be a disaster. This is genuinely gonna be a disaster. I'm sorry, but look, look, look at what's happening already now, okay? There are increasingly, people can't afford to, to feed their families, all right? Winter's gonna come and half the country's gonna be struggling to heat their homes. That's what's gonna happen. And then you've got another 20, 30% above that, that have an extra two, 3,000 extra cost of living. Well, that's the money they needed to go to the shops, to go on holiday, to go to the bars, to go to the cinema, to go to the theater, right? These guys can't go out anymore. You know, this money that is being sucked out of ordinary people's purchasing power—that is the money that drives the economy.
0: And, and do you see take that away. And do you yeah. see inflation continuing at, at the current pace? I mean, a lot of economists think well, inflation will probably taper down by
2: the end of the year. How do you see it? Listen, inflation will eventually normalize. But the point that I want to make is, even if inflation normalizes, that doesn't mean prices go back to where they were. Mm. So we will move to a new normal where the normal cost of living is permanently higher relative to an ordinary person's wages. And that means the standard of living will be permanently lower for ordinary people. And this is exactly what you should expect when you have an enormous and permanent increase in wealth inequality. This has been the largest ever transferred wealth from ordinary people to the rich. So ordinary people will see their quality of life fall if they don't change that. Do you see a connection between that wealth transfer?
0: And we've done some stories on this particular program about, for example, the um, the companies that are responsible for, for food and grocery prices, whether it's the grocery stores or the, uh, the, the Tyson chickens, uh, that their prices have gone up far faster than the cost of living, far, far higher than even inflation. So it seems like within certain sectors in America, there's a lot of corporate
2: price gouging that's going on. Listen, rich people have much, 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 much more money than they had two, three years ago. per American adult has been printed and it's all ended up with the richest, which means the average wealthy American family is sitting on hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars cash more. These guys are going to buy more stuff and they can pay more with it and partially they will invest in natural resources. They can buy and hold those natural resources to make themselves richer. Look, if you make the rich much, much, much richer, then they will take a bigger share of the output and of the natural resources that leaves less for the rest of us.
0: Gary, if you could have a conversation with Joe Biden and top members of Congress right now, what what would you say to them? What's the the solution here?
2: Assuming that they have the political will and the votes to do it, what's the solution? Listen, you guys have presided over the biggest and fastest ever increase in wealth inequality, but it's fixable. The money is there. That $4 trillion is sitting in the bank accounts of the richest Americans, while ordinary people are struggling to heat their homes and feed their families. $4 trillion is there, you have to access it. Be careful, plan a tax that works, but you have to tax the richest. It's the only way to avoid an economic disaster here. And finally,
0: Gary, how did you go from being a trader to being somebody who is essentially a, an advocate for, for this kind of work?
2: Oh, well, I don't have much time, but um, uh, yeah, I'm from East London near the financial center. Um, I went to the London School of Economics and um, actually before the financial crisis, Citibank used to hire one trader a year through a card game, which is basically a maths game. Um, I'm good at maths, I'm good at games. So I entered that and I won and uh, Yeah, I became a trader and um, I was quite a good one. If people want to know more, they can check out my YouTube, Gary's Economics, lots of information there. (laughs) Okay,
0: Gary Stevenson, he's a trader turned inequality economist. Gary, good of you to join us. Uh, Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of the conversation. On behalf of Asher Cofield, Gina Kim, Craig Lowry, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time.